welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I am Boomer. Hey, I'm Allie. And we are welcoming in the new year. We're going to be talking about, a lot about best of 2022 holdover stuff. I'm very excited to talk to y'all because it's been about a month. I'm sure everyone's been watching a lot of movies because this is the time of year where we kind of cram and then start making lists. And honestly, I kind of build my whole year around this ritual. So I'm just excited to collaborate with y'all on this. Especially after a month of us taking off as a group, um, because I don't know, I've just been around a lot of people that don't share this niche interest, and I'm starting to realize how out of touch I am with the common man. (laughs) I need some nerds to like talk to me about Cronenberg and like weirdo shit. So I'm very happy to be in the same room with y'all again, virtually. (laughs) Don't drop the curtain. (laughs) (laughs) How was y'all's New Year's? And holidays and all that. Uh, my holidays were great. Uh, I actually went back to Louisiana for uh, eight whole days. I got into Whoa. town. I stayed with a friend in Baton Rouge and then went out to my parents' house Thursday. Uh, I spent all day with them. Then Friday, I had dinner with my um, distant cousin who had been telling. Uh, we, we actually met in high school. It's a whole story where we realized we were cousins when we were in college that I won't be telling because we have so much to get through. But she did spend <laughs> the days leading up to my arrival telling her daughter, like, Uncle Cousin Mark is coming. Uncle Cousin Mark is coming. And finally, her husband had to be like, it can be uncle or it can be cousin. <laughs> but it cannot be Uncle Cousin Mark because that's too country. There are some implications there you do not want to deal with. <laughs> yeah. And so then, you know, I spent the whole uh, of Christmas weekend with my parents. Monday, I went into Baton Rouge again and had uh, lunch with my dear friend, Alicia. used to be in a band together she's been out west for years now and i haven't gotten to see her so that was great and then had uh or went over in the evening to the parents of my goddaughter and you may also know them uh, from the fact that they are my cat's original owners so Murderface was originally their cat that was nice then i spent tuesday with my mom and then Wednesday, I went to New Orleans and, and visited a couple of other friends and drove back Thursday. And I've just been back in town since Thursday. I will tell you, I never, ever want to drive through Houston again. Oh, God. Everyone there drives like they are insane. And you can hardly blame them because the signs don't make any sense. Which is a lot saying that when you're from Baton Rouge, where everyone drives like they hate the fact that you're also on the road. Everyone in Houston drives like it's not their first time behind the wheel, but it's their first day on Earth. Yes. And again, you can hardly blame them because the road signs don't make any sense. I almost got into three accidents and I was I was already stressed because between Baton Rouge and the and Houston, I had gotten stuck behind two oversized trucks. One of them that took up both lanes all the way from Lake Charles to the Texas border and the other which took up two of the three lanes so that all three lanes of traffic were being uh, shuttled into one lane from like 50 to 30 miles outside of Houston. Um, So I was, it was a very stressful drive back after a very nice visit. Uh, (laughs) I learned a lot about myself and what I'm willing to tolerate and what I'm going to have to avoid in the future. And uh, you are right that this is the time of year where we cram I watched three movies yesterday alone, um, but part of that was just because I needed to get out of my headspace a little bit. Allie, what about uh, what about you? How how was your New Year's? My New Year's was lazy. I sat around the house and uh, watched movies and 
listen to the children outside running around screaming, throwing those little like, you know, the little like pop things that you throw at the ground. Yeah. Uh, they were throwing those at each other. It's pretty good background sounds to watching movies. And for my Christmas, I uh, had a very like lonely dog filled holiday. <laughs> I was pet sitting from the 17th to the 27th. Ooh. For three dogs, and while it was only like a couple of miles from my house, I still was around three dogs for most of the time. And weirdly, even though it's never been an interest of mine, and I am still fairly apathetic to it, I've taken up puzzling, like doing jigsaw puzzles. Did you get some for Christmas or something? No, I was... Sitting at this house with these two dogs, three dogs, and I look over in their shelf where they have all the games and they had a bunch of puzzles. And I was like, oh, might as well. <laughs> might as well kill some time. And then as I was doing them, I was like, oh, this is really, really good for my anxiety and OCD stuff. Sounds cozy. Yeah. Even if a little lonely. Was it? Quite home alone because I didn't, you know, booby trap the house, but <laughs> it's probably the like least eventful holiday. I've ever had which is good sometimes you have to have those i didn't how was your holiday it was good uh saw some family over christmas so i haven't seen in a long time traveled to north louisiana <laughs> to get out of the city uh Ooh. during the harsh freeze uh that came out this north. christmas monroe oh like north. five hours yeah 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 but it would have been just as cold at home if, if not even colder you know you go to other people's houses and they actually like, run the heat and ac <laughs> uh, and they're not like yeah. Pitch and pennies the way that you do, and you're like, oh wow, this is the life of luxury. Yep. <laughs> so uh that was nice, and you know, we ate well and told ghost stories on Christmas Eve, the way we've been doing the past few years. And then for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, Cece and I have been doing this thing recently where we like rerun our favorite movies of the year, like as a marathon on the TV, and people drop by for snacks and bubbly um at their own leisure across those two days. What I realized was because of the pandemic, we hadn't done that in a couple of years. And like, it was really nice to have an excuse to throw a party just so I could deep clean my house. There's like a natural yeah. health mm -hmm. checkup that the house needed of that doesn't happen if there aren't like people coming over. It just felt really good to do that. Um, even though like my version of a party is not actually like a rager at this age. It's basically like I'm going to eat a lot of delicious things and you can come by too if you want to eat some of those before they're gone. Um, <laughs> oh, you should call it a salon. <laughs> I called it a snackathon, which made it a lot less uh, fancy sounding than a salon. Ooh, snackathon. <laughs> See, I Come like the sound my of salon. <laughs> my snackathon salon. So I did rewatch a lot of my favorite movies of 2022, and I did post the list afterwards. I did like a slight reordering after those revisits. Mm. So that kind of took up a lot of time. Just like actually cleaning my house took like three or four days uh, to like organize the clutter. Because of that, I've only been to the theater maybe one time since the last time we recorded, which was like a month ago. Uh, I went to go see the new Damien Chazelle movie, Babylon. Oh. It felt like the last thing I had to see for best of the year purposes because the reviews have been so polarized where it's like there are a few sickos who absolutely love it. And there are the vast majority of people which thinks it's an incoherent, coked-out mess. 
And I, I wish I could fall into one of those camps with like a passionate fury uh, because it is stirring that strong reaction in, in those two groups of people. I thought it was pretty good, but I don't have much to say about it, uh, really. It's, it's like a three-hour montage set in early Hollywood. Um, so like pre-code, big productions uh, by these like studios that were just running on, um, yeah, like I said, cocaine. I do want to ask, Ali, had you heard of this one? No. Okay, so what <laughs> I'm hearing from all over is people being like, oh, this movie had no marketing. This movie had no promotion. I saw the trailer for this movie like 16 times. Like, <laughs> I, I saw constant advertising for this movie. So it's very confusing to me that there are people who are like, you know, before every movie I saw in theaters for the past six months, whether it was Don't Worry Darling or Bros, I, I saw constant promotion for Babylon. And it's kind of shocking to me to learn from the internet that they're like, oh, I never saw any trailers for this because I couldn't get away from them. So the difference is I not go to theaters all year. <gasps> right. But I was still getting them even on like my streaming services. Really? Too. Like, yeah, it's never shown to me on any of my streaming services. It, it felt like I kept like selecting a video to listen to in the shower and then getting in and then having to get out again to skip the three minute trailer for Babylon, like for the past <laughs> like four months. But I, I guess, I guess that wasn't how it was for everyone. So that's what I was kind of saying earlier about getting outside of this, like movie nerd bubble. Like not only would people not have heard of this movie, unless you're kind of plugged into like movie culture, but also for you to give a shit about movies that were made literally a hundred years ago, like you yeah. already have to be plugged into that kind of like, not only like movie nerd culture as it is now, but like sort of this like historical academic um, appreciation of the art form as well, which I think right. is an even smaller niche. So it's really funny that Chazelle made this like $80 million sprawling epic about that period with like all the movie stars in the world in it. I guess, I guess the bigger two are Margot Robbie and uh, Brad Pitt, but like there are a lot of people in this movie. My complaints about it is like, there's a lot of decadence and it really like overwhelms you on purpose. Like it feels like a three hour montage of just like constant visual excitement, but never really settling into like a dramatic rhythm. Hmm. And the problem with it is like the two things it most resembles are both better versions of what it's doing. Like it kind of feels like hail Caesar. I was, I was thinking yeah, of hail Caesar. I was wondering thinking of, yeah. But it's like remade to fit the exact narrative structure of Boogie Nights. And it's like, I already love Hail Caesar and Boogie Nights. I don't need those two flavors combined into one pudding. But that doesn't mean it was an unpleasant visit to the movies. And there are definitely like some impressively alienating things in this multi-million dollar movie star extravaganza. Like every single bodily fluid you can name graces the screen at some point in that three hour montage. <laughs> it really is trying to disgust you. And it starts off with piss and shit pretty early, like in the first like five minutes, just to set a tone. So if you, if you like big swing for the fences messes, it's definitely better than the worst of those. It's, it's better than like under the silver Lake or something, but hail Caesar did it better. And uh boogie nights already exists. So it, it doesn't really need to be seen. Uh, it's not like an essential piece of uh, movie lore. Uh, I liked it okay. Fair enough. Um, and, and if it has anything to say about movies, it's not like that, wow, the movies are so magical thing. It's more like the fixer 
behind the scene in the way that Hail Caesar is, where like someone's kind of scrambling around to keep all these like lunatics in line so that there's an actual product at the end of the day. Um, and what survives beyond their coke fuel bodies is the movies themselves. So like the art form is bigger than the people. Um, and that's not necessarily like a, a beautifully poetic thing. It's like kind of a dark take on the industry, but it doesn't really have anything like new or like life changing to say about the art form either. So I, I wish I could say I was one of the uh, apologists that are uh, like championing it as one of the best movies of the year. Instead, it was just like a, a nice three hour diversion in the middle of the holiday season for me. Fair but enough. I, I assume y'all have been adding stuff to your best of the year lists. As of this recording, I've published the only one among us, but I believe maybe like a day or two after this um, episode goes up, Boomers should be published as well. Because I, I just got that in my inbox and I'm working on it right now. <laughs> so it's in the works. Don't panic. There's still plenty of time. You sound like you sound like I'm rushing you, but I'm not. I promise. Were there any last minute additions to that list? Movies that will be on that list that we have not discussed on this podcast that I did watch since we last met were Glass Onion, Fire Island, the topic of discussion for today, which I won't spoil, although I don't know why I always say that. People see what the titles of these episodes are. <laughs> and I finally got around to doing copy on Nope because uh, I know that you were waiting for it for a long time, Brandon, and I, I always keep my promises, although sometimes it might be a while. And I don't want to uh, you know, cannibalize what I've already written in those, so I guess I'll just talk about the other things that I watched since we last met um, up first is the Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, Cause that I watch every year. We've discussed it on the podcast before. It is my favorite adaptation of the Christmas Carol. It contains my favorite actual Christmas Carol, meaning like Christmas song, which is the song. It feels like Christmas. I love it. Um, this year we got a friend of ours who is not a fan of the Muppets and not really even a fan of the Christmas Carol to watch it with us. And he did laugh occasionally, although he tried to hide it just as much as I tried to hide every time I cry, because I do cry like three or four times in that movie every time. But it was very funny to at least initially pretend that he had no idea what the Christmas Carol was, like that he had never heard of the story. <laughs> and so he was joking about how, you know, joking at the beginning about how it seemed like Scrooge was such a reasonable man. <laughs> he didn't understand why everyone was treating him like such a harridan. He completely agreed with everything that Scrooge had to say, which was very funny. And he was uh, shocked, appalled, and delighted whenever uh, Scrooge was played by Michael Caine, because as someone who had never seen this before, he somehow didn't know that, uh, which was a delight. One of the other things that I watched, which was a real disappointment to me, because I've been wanting to see this movie for a long time, uh, there were many years where it was difficult to find, and I acquired it, but could never find the time to watch it. It's a 2000 film called Psycho Beach Party. Are we familiar? I've I've wanted to see that one and the uh, Reefer Madness musical, which are kind of linked in my head uh, for a long time, but I've never seen either. Well, I um, love Lauren Ambrose. Like I was a huge fan of Six Feet Under. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. I think that Claire Fisher is one of the most fascinating characters that has ever been on television. I think Lauren Ambrose played her with style and aplomb. This is also one of the very few movies that has Nicholas Brendan of Buffy in a starring role. It's got Matt Kiesler. It has a cast of people that, uh, you know, a pre-fame Amy Adams, which, you know, I guess I think we say that phrase a lot 
on this podcast because <laughs> we just last said it in Pumpkin, but that was you know around the same time you know before her big breaks with like June Bug and then all of her Oscar wins, but. Unfortunately, Psycho Beach Party just did not speak to me the way that I wanted it to. It was fun in its adaptation of sort of the gidgetness of everything. But the central conceit of it is that there is a split personality that Lauren Ambrose's character has. And it never really works for me. Like the idea is that when she sees circles that it hypnotizes her and she switches personality to this more abrasive sexualized being but it never quite works and as good of an actress as lauren ambrose is i think she just might have been too young at this time to try and pull off that kind of change like i have no doubt that where she is as an actress she could do it now i have no doubt that she could have done it just a few years later during like the heyday of six feet under but in 2000 she was simply not prepared to uh, handled this kind of role, unfortunately. Although there is a really fun sort of background story going on where two of the beach bums that she ingratiates herself with start out just kind of having like, you know, little homoerotic wrestling matches that by the end of the film blossom into full-blown romance. That's about the only thing in the movie that's really noteworthy or fun. So I can't say that I recommend it. And um, the last three movies that I watched are, of course, all connected because I am continuing my Cohen Brothers watch. So I did circle back and watch The Big Lebowski and A Brother Where Art Thou since I skipped over those two initially because I had seen both of them like dozens and I'm not joking, possibly hundreds of times. The Big Lebowski used to be one of my favorite movies when I was a teenager, when I was a Teenager at boarding school in the dorms, I had a big Lebowski poster. I thought it was the greatest movie. I thought it was really cool. And I have got to be honest, I don't think that it has held up for me personally as much as some of the others have. And I think that that's also true of the Coens. I remember while reading about it, I found an article where Ethan had said that, you know, that film, speaking of the big Lebowski, holds a lot more importance or has more staying power with the audience than it does with us. I mean, the movie did come out 25 years ago, and I think that people are still trying to ask them about little bits and pieces, because as a movie, it's gotten such a cult following that people are watching it over and over again. But I think the Coen brothers have really moved on from it. And I think that maybe, and not watching it, you know, in several years, maybe I have too. It still has like an annual festival too, I think, where like people dress yeah. up like the dude and like yeah. make white Russians or whatever. And it's never been like a personal favorite of mine either, even though I really do love Julianne Moore's character in that film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not like something that really sticks out to me as like a core part of my identity, the way it does with certain people. Like it becomes like a philosophical object uh, to the people who are really tuned into it. Yeah. Like I always have parts that I laugh at, but there's people who are so so into that movie and i think a lot of the you can say older guys some older guys (laughs) i thought you were gonna say like dude bros and film bros um there are some of those but i'm thinking of very specific 63 year olds i know who love him he's great but it's like his movie wow goes bowling he drinks mm. white russians he's got the jacket that 
um, Pendleton released not that long ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's his thing. I guess if you're going to pick like a this is my personality movie among the usual suspects like Pulp Fiction or Fight Club or, (laughs) you know, any number of uh, Christopher Nolan films like. Yeah. If you're going to pick one of those, the Big Lebowski is kind of a charmer in that crowd. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I feel like. Like, you know, anybody who's just like, this is my thing, I'm the dude. Usually they're pretty chill, but people who are, like you said, bros do tend to be all over those Coens and past the point of their 20s. Because I feel like that's one of those, like, if you like movies, you like the Coen brothers, and you go through a thing. Right. Only Damien Giselle is out there making Hail Caesar his personality. Yeah. And you have to respect that individualism. <laughs> well, maybe we should all do that. You have to pick a Coen Brothers movie to make your personality. I don't think Hail Caesar is a bad choice either. Might be my favorite film from them, to be honest. It is kind of an insane choice, but it's not a bad choice. <laughs> It's definitely near the top for me, which I always liked it more than other people. Hail Caesar, I mean, but I don't. It wasn't until this most recent rewatch that I was like, man, this might be one of their actual best, best. So good. <laughs> and then I did watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which the same friend who is like a Muppet humbug, uh, he hates that one. And I ha- think that he might be the only person I've ever met who actually hates Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Like, I know that there might be people who dislike it, but I have to say, even on this most recent rewatch, now I- I'll tell you straight up, there was a summer where I spent almost all of the time that I was at my grandparents' house, like in the attic of the barn. And I had a little VHS TV combo up there to be the only thing to like listen to and i watched two movies over and over the first was buffy the vampire slayer and the second was oh brother where art thou to the point where one would think that i would be sick of it if i'm also tired at this point of the big lebowski but that just isn't the case honestly it's it rocketed it back up into the top part of my list for the cohen brothers i know that Maybe not everybody likes the bluegrass, although I do, but it's hard for me to imagine, even with someone in my life who hates Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, being able to hate Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. My coworker does not watch a lot of movies, but she quotes that one all the time. And I ask her every now and then, like, did you watch that again? She's like, yeah, I've probably seen it like two times this month already. Like. It's just like a stealth favorite yeah. that she doesn't even think about it. She kind of throws it on the way people like throwing like a Beatles record when they don't know what to listen to, you know? It's fair. We all kind of have that background comfort watch thing a little bit. So I get yeah. that. I don't know if I told y'all about cousin-in-law and her partner. Often, like whenever something like totally minor, like just dis- minorly disappointing or like just like in the way happens, uh, they call themselves a man of constant sorrow, which I think is so good. There are jokes in that movie that have become shorthand jokes in my family too, as well. I can't tell you how many times one of my relatives has like talked about, are you in an OFT? Like, you know, Mrs. Codswaller's done. Are you in an OFT? Like they're spelling it out. So the boy doesn't know his mother is gone. (laughs) <laughs> and then he rescues them from the barn once the fire is set. We also 
you know, whenever someone in the family is trying to say something and they, you know, you can't hear them because they mumble or whatever, and you ask them to repeat it and they say it again, you still don't understand. After the third time, the person who doesn't hear them is like, what? You thought I was a toad. And so that has also entered like my family lexicon and vernacular, just many quotes from this one. The music is beautiful. The scenes are often haunting. I love the whole odyssey-ness of it to the point where, you know, I even think I wrote about it in grad school and I still hadn't seen it at that point. Like at that point, I hadn't seen it in years, but I could recall almost every bit of it with perfect clarity. It's just about a perfect adaptation of the odyssey. I really love it. And what's funny is that, you know, as part of the watch of like other Coen Brothers movies, just a couple of days before that, we watched what feels like a very similar spiritual sequel kind of movie to it, which is Inside Lewin Davis, which I don't know if either of you saw. Yeah, I saw. I can't say I've had interest in seeing it. <laughs> there was a moment when the movie first started where it was just Lewin Davis performing at a venue. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, this movie is going to be a long hard slog yeah and then it immediately picked up after about 10 minutes in and through the end of it i was captivated so take from that what you will uh it's very funny it is funny ali what did you think of it so i i have mixed feelings on it because it is very funny and it's like it's darkly funny in a lot of ways yeah at the same time like it's the character of Lewin. I'm just like, this is a terrible human, and he deserves He's all of this. such an awful man. <laughs> yeah, it's like, all of this. you can't feel sorry for him, because everything that is wrong in his life is of his own making. Yeah. Just about. I think that's one of the personality movies that, like, turns me off, is, like, I think people really identify with that film in a way that, like, I don't want to watch it. Well, to be fair, the movie... Definitely does not glamorize him. Okay. Yeah. There are a couple of moments where you feel some empathy for him. Like at one point, he is meeting up with this woman who is in a relationship, but she slipped up and he, you know, he impregnated her and they're talking about how he's going to pay for the abortion. But at the same time, he has spent the first half of this movie trying to find this cat that belongs to a friend of his that accidentally got out. And like, that is the thing that he worries about. And even she is like shocked. She's like, that's what you're worried about in this moment. The cat, not all of this other stuff that is going on around you. So there are moments that humanize him and that make you sort of empathize with him a little, but the long and short of it is every thing that is wrong in his life is really his fault because of his inability to control himself as well as like his unwillingness to recognize economic realities, by which I mean he refuses to quote-unquote sell out, even though he doesn't really have a choice, and even if he did it just a little bit once. Like, he's very short-sighted. There's a scene, a really good one, where he goes to CBS Studios and records like a novelty song uh, with his friend and also Adam Driver who is there doing like weird space noises and into Justin the microphone. Timberlake. That's very funny. Yeah, it's Justin Timberlake, who's his, yeah. his friend. And 
multiple times people are like, are you sure you want to cash out as a day player? Are you sure you, you know, you won't get any royalties that way. And it's such a microcosm of the way that Lewin thinks, where he's like, no, I've got to get $300 today. Even though like later in the movie, he meets up with other friends who are, you know, very adamant, like, oh, I heard that song. It's going to do great. You're going to finally make it big off of those royalties. It's like every single thing that he does is the result or every failure that he has is the result of his own short-sightedness. So it is, it is fascinating. The music is amazing. It's great. There's a cover of the old folk ballad, 500 Miles, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard in a movie. It almost moved me to tears while watching it. It was so beautifully performed, um, as well as others. And I, I would really recommend it, Brandon, actually. I, if, you can, if you can get through the first 15 minutes, you can get through the whole thing. And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't point out that inside Lewin Davis, uh, the person who is his uh, friend, who is sort of like an anthropologist or, or something or whatever that he uh, stays with. He wakes up. At... So one of the things that I really like about it is it is not a time loop movie, but you can read it as a time loop movie, if that makes any sense. Like the movie opens with him doing a quick performance and then getting like, you know, knocked around in an alley and he wakes up in a friend's apartment. And then that kind of happens at the end of the movie as well. And you can interpret that, and you probably would, uh, you know, most people probably would as, you know, oh, this is just, we finally caught up with the initial story. But I like that it kind of puts Lewin in this purgatory yeah. state where, like, where you end the movie is exactly where you started the movie, where Lewin is in a, a trapped in a shame spiral. Right. Like, that is exactly the way this movie kind of feels. It's very liminal. Yeah, like, it is very much a purgatory feeling movie, but like in like a very beautiful way. They're good at that generally. Yeah. Yeah. Things feel mundane, but also like philosophically important and otherworldly at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I think they're pretty good at striking that balance. But like I said, we would be remiss if we did not point out that his friend Mitch is played by Ethan Phillips, who, of course, we all know from his career making role as Neelix on Star Trek. Neelix! <laughs> I forgot he was in that. Yes. When I saw it, I was like, wow, here's a character played by Ethan Phillips that doesn't make me want to run screaming from the room. But that only lasts for about five seconds, and then you want to run screaming. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, also Robert Picardo's in Hail Caesar, so. He sure is. So, you know, what other what other Voyager dealers the uh, Cohen's going to take? I don't know. I've still got a few left to watch, but I'll keep everyone appraised. But uh, yeah, that catches me up. Allie, what have you been watching? Oh, obviously, since I was by myself, I uh, was watching so much. I do this thing um, where if I am by myself and left to my own devices, I am absolutely trash. And I watched um, both season two and three of Love is Blind. And then at some point in my stay in the doghouse, I started watching some movies just to have on while puzzling. And the first one I watched was Funny Girl with uh, Barbara, a girl, Barbara Streisand. I really enjoyed it. You know, I know we're a hit or miss on musicals amongst this group. I like musicals. 
It's just me who hates them. <laughs> I have a thing where I am more fond of musicals where music is from people who are performers. You mean the actors or the characters? Characters. So, okay. like, you know, Young Girls Rochefort. Makes sense that they would sing and dance all the time. They're singers and dancers. Like, Funny Girl. These are singers and dancers. You know, Funny Girl, she plays this performer. She wants to get big. But just quote unquote like not traditionally beautiful which i mean that does not age well because you're like barbara freaking streisand what are you talking about right and uh basically she makes it as like a singer and comic instead and it's very funny um as the name would imply and after also seeing what's up doc or quaflix movie of the month a while back i'm just like wow like I really enjoy her film career. I'm like entering that point in my life where I'm like, I love Barbara. <laughs> um, feel like I'm I'm officially turning old. Maybe I don't know, but I highly recommend it. It's it's really good. It's not just like you know, a straight funny movie because the character she falls in love with this guy who's basically a gambler for a living. So of course, like that adds this like tension and drama but she's constantly and always like the main breadwinner she's wildly successful as a singer and being funny so it's kind of really great in that way to have not only a story about like a non-conventionally attractive woman making it but then also in freaking boss basically um so that's great the next movie that I also watched while puzzling all my puzzling movies is I finally watched Moonstruck. Oh, I love that one. One of the greatest so films of all time. So freaking good. Uh, definitely like rocketed up there as like some of the top Nicolas Cage acting. <laughs> he is so unhinged. He's so unhinged. He really the moon struck uh-huh. him for sure. And you know, shares also great like i said i feel like i'm turning old like watching all these eva's careers <laughs> there's a stretch in the 80s where like every share movie is a comfort watch for me like i love witches of eastwick mermaids and this one about as equally and i could watch any of those at any time and be perfectly happy like those are my babysitters those three I movies i see that and Nick Cage was honestly kind of hot back then. Yes. I don't know. He's like this, so hunky in this one. That one in a Valley he Girl as like well. He's been going to the gym a lot. I mean, I also think that carries over into Raising Arizona. Sure. You don't notice it because they make him look so yeah. goofy in it. You don't notice. But he's he's kind of hunky in yeah. that one, too. That was one of my favorite episodes we recorded last year with the other crew was um, we did Nick Cage as like a heartthrob. Because oh, there was that. a time when like... He had sex appeal. Like, it's weird to think of him that way now because he's been so like thoroughly memeified. But like, he was a pretty legitimate leading man for a while. I kind of miss his like snaggle tooth mm-hmm. and like fetch me the big knife energy, uh, <laughs> where <laughs> he will cut you, uh, but you're gonna have a, a very hot time <laughs> with that. I don't know if we ever talked about this on the podcast, but like. About a month ago, I went to an estate sale, and it was the childhood home of, I forget the guy's name, and I feel really bad about it, but he was the founder of both Starlog and Fangoria magazines. Oh, wow. 
he's not dead he just lives out west now so this was like his childhood home it was his parents home he had lived there for some time so there was an awful lot of like memorabilia and stuff and specifically for cat i picked up every like loose starlog magazine that was laying around that had the x-files on the cover and there was one of them that had an interview with him in the lead up to what was supposed to be like his role as superman in that canceled Superman movie that he even got as far as doing like costume tests for. And it was a really fascinating look into like the world that might have been. There was also a lot of pornography there. <laughs> and you didn't send any of that to me? I was going to say Well, there, look, I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you. There is one that I've been thinking about because its title is <clears throat> Frat House Boys Mardi Gras 1994 party from hell part two and it is legitimately just the cameraman wandering around the quarter during mardi gras and people showing him their flaccid dicks wow i don't know if that is pornography but it's definitely I can't not believe art that you did not send this to brandon that sounds like admissible evidence <laughs> <laughs> wait admissible evidence for what i don't know some trial is missing it's like exhibit yeah. numbers three or whatever well i will i only recently discovered what was on it because i had it and it <laughs> sat on a shelf for like a month and then i was like hmm, let me see what is on this tape and it's it's that's what it is um, so be on the lookout for for that in the mail <laughs> <laughs> maybe so those were my old watches and like everybody else i have been amping up catching up um, I think I generally always have more catch-up than everybody else, but I watched Del Toro's Pinocchio, which I really, really liked, and I cried <laughs> a lot about. Oh, no, me. I am a Del Toro fan. That basic film fan. We I, do know I know that. y'all know yeah. that. <laughs> that is uh, true. <laughs> so this was a Del Toro movie I actually had no excitement about. When I heard that it was being made, I was like, uh, really? Remakes? I don't know. And then I heard that guy who created Over the Garden Wall is one of the people who helped to write it. And I was like, all right. And the visual director was the guy who co-directed the animation for uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, so I'm I was intrigued. like, all right. I love Over the Garden Wall. And I like Del Toro, so maybe I will trust this. Uh, so I sat down and I watched it, and I love it, but that is one bizarre movie, and I have no idea who the like, audience is supposed to be for it, other than like people like me, honestly. Yeah, I think it's for Del Toro heads. Like It kind of reconfigures Pinocchio to be just like all of his other lovable yeah. monsters. And the movie's very horrified by his disgusting little oh, puppet body, yes. uh, but also charmed by his rambunctious yes. personality. Like it's just like another Del Toro misunderstood yeah. monster movie, but it's also yeah, Pinocchio it's at the also same time. Pinocchio. Just like I can't get over the fact that like this is a family movie, and it's not even that far along in the movie that you basically get like a biblically accurate angel showing up, voiced by Tilda Swinton, and I'm like. <laughs> What the hell is going on in this movie? 
Yet another movie where Tilda Swinton plays her own family it's, member because she plays a pair of sisters that are biblically accurate yeah. angels. <laughs> it's so dark and you just can't imagine like sitting down as a family with kids being like, oh yeah, let's watch Pinocchio and then watching this movie with them. I imagine that I won't be the only one like will cry. There's probably like a scarred for life nine-year-old out there who's still crying because a lot of it is about life death and like parental relationships and yeah you know i recently like lost my grandma and it's very much like older influential figures in movies dying is already like oh but in just like the relationship here between a father trying to accept his monstrosity he's created of this like grotesque wooden boy and like how he's nothing the son he wants and just like his journey to acceptance with that and also like you know Pinocchio's journey to try and be someone that try and fail to be someone that his dad wants is it's rough and then also you know there's a really great with Mussolini. Well, it wouldn't be a Del Toro movie without children fighting yeah, fascism exactly. from the ground. Where else are they supposed to fight it from? They're so small. Right. <laughs> and also just a Pinocchio movie where like the moral of the movie is not change yourself, be a real boy. It's be ungovernable. Be a rambunctious little shit. Yeah, Pinocchio is like super annoying in a way that yes. only children are. And the movie like yes. celebrates that. It's like, yes, be annoying, be you know the opposite of fascism. Be something we cannot fit into a box because you're a chaotic little curious um, goblin who can't sit still for five minutes and is like yeah. a selfish little shit. How did you feel about this one, Brandon? When you saw it, were you as positive on it? I think in a year where there weren't a dozen spectacular stop motion animation films, I might have been more charmed by it. I, I do really like it. I think it's good. My main thing that's kind of tampering my enthusiasm for it is that it's a musical where none of the songs are good. Mm. Like, there's not there, one memorable right. song among there them. There is a memorable song, but it's a real tearjerker. What, the, the Papa song? Yeah. It's fine. I, I don't know. I just, like, uh, I wish there were no songs. And being stunned by, like, seeing Mad God on the big screen this year or, like, Marcel the Shell or any other number of, like, stop-motion movies, like... Usually there's like one or two of those, the champion. And like this late in the year, it's like there should be a stop motion movie on your best of the year list. I don't know which one speaks to people personally. This is just as like, you know, legitimate as any of the other ones. But um, I almost feel like spoiled to like say like this and like uh, Wendell and Wilds, like the new Henry Selleck movie. Another one that like looks beautiful and is like a gorgeously animated stop motion movie that like. I don't know. I feel a little jaded and spoiled. I'm like, well, I've seen some other great stuff just like yeah. this this year okay. <laughs> where there weren't a bunch of songs that uh, didn't hit for me. So It's been a really, really good year for stop motion. I was mostly just curious from the, the way that it was being described. It sounded like Problem Child, <laughs> which I know you love. So I was like, did you love this because you love Problem Child? Or I love that aspect of it. Like, I love the idea that Pinocchio's selfishness and exuberance for misbehavior is to be celebrated as one of life's great joys. Like 
the ungovernable spirit of children being the opposite of fascism and something that should be appreciated as like a necessary part of life. That is yes. like beautiful stuff to me. Okay. It's just also a very long movie where there's other stuff going on that isn't yeah, quite I as exciting. Work with kids, so to have a movie that really just captures like that part of kids and why that part of kids is like so good and like oh, it really is good. This is really great. It's funny. I I brought this up um on an episode that just me and Boomer recorded when I saw it on the big screen and like it was like I cannot phrase this in any way that boomer would be excited about it like i think the children the like childhood exuberance would annoy you and i think the songs would really turn you off it's not a movie for you except for how beautiful (laughs) the stop motion is and for that you know like there's so many other stop motions so and i do love del toro i just whenever you texted me a couple days after we recorded and you're like oh by the way another mark against Del Toro's Pinocchio. It is a musical. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. That does kibosh some things for me. It was crazy. Like, I described it for minutes on end, and then, like, I was editing the podcast later, and I was like, I did not say the word musical once. Like, that's how little the songs <laughs> matter. Yeah, it to could me do without the songs. That is, like, a totally, totally valid criticism of it. And I also, uh, when we watched uh, Glass Onion. Oh, what did you think? I thought it was fun. Yeah. You no, know, I think we've really zeroed in on the fact that we need this sort of like hip, colorful, like murder mystery kind of story. It's very funny, of course. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed how well established the characters were simply through the nature of like, there's, you know, there's the scene where they're all arriving to get on the boat to go to uh, similar to but legally distinct from Elon Musk's island. And uh, the way that every person is wearing their mask is what serves as the yes. visual shorthand for what kind of character they are. Where like Catherine Hans, sort of neo-lib governor is like it's falling off of her face. She can't get it on right. Yeah, her nose is above it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Birdie played by Kate Hudson shows up and she's wearing one of those useless lace masks. To be like, yes, of course, I'm conforming to whatever you need, but, you know, really just, like, not bothering at all. And then characters who literally don't bother at all, who are, like, MRAs and stuff. So very fun, very simple visual storytelling. But, like, to be honest, you know, uh, there's a lot of movies that... I'm shocked when I watch, like, even older TV shows. I've been watching a lot of Moonlighting lately how much dedication there is to sort of like world building in comparison to movies now where everything is just dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Cause they, you know, that's the only thing people are noticing while they're like sitting at home on the couch on their phones, just listening to the movie passively. Yeah. And there's just some shots in that movie with really great, like visual framing. I really enjoyed. Like there's one that's got like whole cast basically like, you know, the triangle of people with the Mona Lisa just, like, perfectly framed up in the background. It's great. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of kind of into it. I want the series to, to keep going. I agree. I agree fully. Well, he's making at least one more because he got a big paycheck to make two Netflix sequels. Good. Right. Can't wait to see where Benoit Blanc I was going to say. And, you know, maybe we'll see more of him and 
Philip. This is one of the few instances in which I actually like Daniel Craig too. I don't normally like him very much. Yeah, but I, I like this too. character. Love him in Logan Lucky. It's like the one thing I jumps to mind that he's like excellent in. And he's also doing a southern drawl in that one. Yeah, I think we just like his sure is. southern accent. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think seeing him in this and watching him play this like character, he's really put in some work into creating this character that it's almost hard to believe there is no existing source material for this character. Like it's not, he's not like a book detective. He's not like a television like show detective that already existed. Like, yeah, he's kind of an amalgam chicken fried steak version of Hercule Poirot. Yeah, so it's it's fun to see him like cut loose and be goofy and it's kind of like oh maybe this is like genuinely like funny person yeah i I think having him be present for the whole film makes this one a little bit more uneven because you know he doesn't show up so early in knives out he doesn't show up until after the murder and after all of the other characters are established yeah and so I think that his lines in the first one also seem punchier because there are fewer of them. Whereas with this one, he's present the whole time and talking. And, you know, I don't think there's a single line that's quite as like funny to me as like, all evidence can tell a tale with a forked toe. Like there are still plenty of <laughs> yeah. great lines, but none of them quite rise to that same level of hilarity to me i was gonna and I think say part none of, it of them is... were about the the nazi boy in the bathroom so yeah <laughs> and what was it that that masturbating nazi child heard in the bathroom you know none of them are quite that good but yeah and then my uh new year's was full of like squelching movies movies with lots of squelching since I watched my TV with the subtitles on constantly, that was one of the captions was squelching for Crimes of the Future, mm. which I enjoyed a lot. It does seem squelchy. It's very squelchy. It's kind of like Crash, Videodrome, and Existence sort of all rolled up. In oh, one. it's kind of like a greatest hits collection of like every movie he's made before. Yeah. yeah. And I think something that struck me is. Now that he's gotten older, I just find Viggo Mortensen's face incredibly interesting. Like, it's just gotten, like, so craggy and, like, the age just really made him, like, a fascinating to look at human. Like, I was never, you know, one of the Lord of the Rings people, like, who was like, oh, Aragorn. Wait, can you do that impression again for me? Oh, Aragorn. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> Love my my mother. Well, in this one, uh, he's like a baby that needs to be burped. Yes, exactly. Like, the entire movie. <laughs> he's a very fussy baby. Yeah, he's a very fussy baby. Um, and I thought it was like interesting take on that, like, like the idea of him being this tortured artist because of his body basically malfunctioning. Like literally, his art is killing him. That's so great. Yeah, it's very squelchy. Very dryly funny movie. Yes, it is. Like the whole thing is that like it's this version of the future where there are like these performance artists that are very popular, like they're the rock stars of the future. Um, and their performance art is that they grow new organs that are um, taken out of their bodies as if those are works of art. We're just um, having, put, be put on display. We're just having their bodies like surgically like manipulated yeah. is the other thing. Which I think is a running joke from Dead Ringers that there's like an inner oh, beauty yeah. pageant. Yeah, the inner beauty pageant. That gets recalled here as well. But like Kristen Stewart being like, 
the fan that is like super into the art and is like a little too into it. Like uh, that sort of nervous enthusiasm she has for it that like yeah. kind of crosses into like kink territory. It's, one um, of my, it's very funny stuff. One of my favorite performances of her, honestly. Yeah, it's a great use of her usual thing. Like she's yeah. not doing anything differently. Yeah. It's just well applied. Yeah. And then I'm a killer director of last night was in it. He's like the other in that office yeah. being great and awkward. I think he's also at the end of Existence as well. He is. Uh when they like come out of yeah. the, the simulation. He is. I think about this movie a lot, uh, just because anytime someone says microplastics or like references yes. how many microplastics are in our food and bodies already, it's a very smart subject for him to pick up and bring into his general catalog of I- of ideas. Uh the same way that like Pinocchio fits very perfectly in line with everything Del Toro's done before, you know. The idea that like your bot our bodies are changing because of how much plastic is gradually being introduced into our yeah. like internal systems. And like that being something that you can't think about too long because it starts to ick you out uh, and like yeah. terrify you about how unavoidable that problem is. Yeah, very smart way to bring his art into a modern context. Yeah, I thought he did it in a way that wasn't like grumpy old man, like a lot of you know, filmmakers who've been working forever do, you know? Yeah. Like Tarantino's last movie was like a get off my lawn, yeah. uh, anger at the youth. Um, Crimes of the future is not that. It's, it's, not. it's, it's very silly in some ways, yeah. uh, and, you know, introspective in others. I, I thought it was, I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. I'm honestly more excited about what his son is doing right now than what he's doing. I, I really, really enjoyed possessor so i i agree with that yeah but uh i think that's just like something that happens if you've been around and you're so distinct for so long like there's not much that happens in here that you can't also find in videodrome and you know that came out so long ago but he hasn't made a movie like this in a long time he hasn't done body horror in forever yeah this is kind of a return to form for him because this is like interesting. Back to my mother and her fascination with Vigo Mortensen. Because my mom really liked Eastern Promises and History of Violence. And I cannot imagine my mom watching any other Cronenberg movies, you know? So it's like he's coming back, but then he's bringing in like his new players, which is great. Yeah. And, and it's more in that philosophical, talky style that he's been doing recently than it is like video drum. Yeah. Like it's, it, I guess there are grotesque gore scenes in it but that's not like the point and it's not trying to like shock you the way his earlier films would have been there's definitely some grotesque squelching i I would say the microplastics thing as a concept and the way they're discussing it like makes me squirm more than like seeing the inside of vigo mortensen's body or at least something i think someone on this podcast could get away with saying yeah this abstract but real real concept freaks me out more than uh gory surgery scenes gory and a little (laughs) bit too realistic i'm like someone on your art department watched a lot of (laughs) a lot of surgery videos i found the like sexually charged atmosphere in those like surgery galleries to be very funny in like a a very wry kind of way that like i guess i wasn't squicked out because i was like amused (laughs) by the uh sort of like um, art world's pretension used as like a mask for like people just getting off as like perverts in, a, in, our, in our gallery setting. <laughs> like uh, I, f- I found that very funny. Um, and I assume he's in on the joke because yeah. he's a very smart guy. Like I, like I was saying earlier, it's just nice to be able to talk to people who know um, 
this stuff because like if you show someone this movie and they aren't familiar with the back catalog of Cronenberg films, like I could see it playing just fine, but like there's so much extra textual stuff that like informs what he's doing in this. It almost feels like a career recap, like he could retire after this one, but I know he's already making another one, so I'm glad he's still out there doing weird shit. Or squelching. Yeah. Squelch fest. Yeah, I was gonna say, and then the other squelchy movie that I finally watched was Mad God. Also squelchy. But I enjoyed it. That one is pure squelch top to bottom. It is. Top to bottom <laughs> bottom squelch. No filler. It was so high on your list. It was. I was impressed. I don't just don't think I saw anything else like it on the big screen. I guess that's the stuff I kind of prioritized was like movies that like took me to another world that you don't see on the screen anywhere else. Yeah. There's nothing quite like Mad God. Oh, there is. <laughs> it is its own sub dungeon of that hell. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was cool. I mean, obviously love stop motion into squelching and gross stuff. Like there wasn't anything for me to not like about it, I guess, is what I'm saying. And like actually really enjoyed the soundtrack and it reminded me like a little bit of like swans like a droney noise yeah yeah and i love that stuff so i was like oh this is great i will say in the theater the ticking clocks and like the babies crying were like the things that really Uh weighed on me (laughs) it's like this is hell (laughs) but it gave me a lot to think about too like i don't know just like yeah you know this is like a 30 year old project from someone who really goes for i think the sort of cliche idea of stop motion being like something weirdos do in their bedroom and never actually complete their like magnum opuses. Like uh, he's been working on this pretty much his you know, entire professional career on the backs of other projects. And uh, the fact that he actually finished it and it is dense with visual information and has like his fingerprints all over it. uh, Phil Tippett, like I said, nothing else like it. Like it is a singular work from a disturbed weirdo <laughs> who uh, obviously had a lot of help because it is a grand production, but also obviously did a lot of this like in solitary bedroom art project mode. And it's gross. Brothers gone and windows on, sisters gone, Google on, nobody knows I'm not alone. Tell me somebody.
as I mentioned, uh, I did post my top 20 movies of the year. And as I've mentioned before in previous episodes, I like to use this podcast as a leveraging power to make other people watch things for this ritual. Um, so I wanted more people to see my favorite movie of 2022, which is Neptune Frost. Uh, it is a Afrofuturist musical directed by Saul Williams and Anisia Uzuman. I believe it's set in Burundi, but filmed in Rwanda in Africa. It is a movie comprised almost entirely of poetry and music. So it is a very difficult movie to describe. I was not sure if anyone else would enjoy it, but I kind of just needed other people to talk to me about it because when I saw it in the theater, I was just kind of looking around at the audience like, are we seeing the same thing? Like, this is blowing my mind. Um, and I don't know that I had that awe and that um, just like completely like taken aback by a film experience much last year. Uh, Mad God, I just referenced kind of doing the same thing, but Neptune Frost is more like energizing and like, it's it's like a fiercely political movie, but also a fiercely like spiritual one, and like um got me, you know, excited about the magic of cinema in a way that like a uh, few movies do when you watch hundreds of movies every year. I'm gonna briefly try to describe the plot, even though it's not a very plot focused film. In Burundi, two characters are sort of lost because of this mourning that they're both experiencing separately. Um, one character is named Matalusa, and his brother is murdered by the guards at a Colton mine. They're, they're molding Colton for cell phones. It's basically like raw material out of the earth that is used to power this technology, but, you know, all the money leaves the village, so all these people are just, like, poor and just mining all day for, like, a pittance. Uh, his brother is murdered by the guards, and he just sort of wanders off from the coal mining site, like, lost and just, you know, completely devastated. And... He finds this commune in the middle of the savanna uh, where other people have been lost and just sort of wandering the earth, not really sure what to do with themselves. And the, uh, the commune has sort of just appeared in this other dimension. People like walk up to it like a force field and they have to like feel their way through this imaginary door to get there. So like it, it only accepts a certain kind of person. It is built out of analog computer parts. There's like all of these circuit boards and like monitor shells and just like pieces of computers that maybe haven't even been in use since the nineties built this retro hacking commune that is not powered. Uh, so in the meantime, there's this other character named Neptune who lost their mother, not as um, violently like their mother just died of old age and they're presenting mail at the beginning of the film, but that is not by choice. That's like sort of like a socially enforced identity. Uh, they keep saying they're, they're also the narrator, Neptune. And they say over the narration, like I was born in my 23rd year. So after their mother dies, they sort of like also go off in the morning into the wilderness and aren't sure what to do with themselves. And uh, they sort of transform into a female persona instead. So like there's two actors playing this character after they're born in their 23rd year, they're born as a woman. And Neptune struggles to find their own place in the world. Uh, they're sexually assaulted by a police officer. They're just completely disconnected from any sense of community. And they also have this way of disrupting electrical signals. Like anytime they walk into a bar and there's like sports playing on the TV, the football game gets disrupted by like glitchy 
what do you call that? Like color stripes kind of like um D lattice. Yeah. yeah. So they eventually find their way to the commune as well. And once that happens, all these lost souls have just been wandering the film. You're not really sure what's going on. It's really like difficult to get your footing. But the meeting of these two characters, Matalusa and Neptune, are like magnets being pulled to each other. And then the movie just comes alive. All of the old circuitry and sort of retro-futuristic objects that have just like laid depowered in this community light up and connect to the internet. And as a new community, they start hacking the planet <laughs> with their like mind and spirits and with their poetry. And like most of the movie is sung through in this futuristic hip hop, uh, also retro, like Afro beat kind of music. And it's very difficult to describe just because there's nothing else quite like it. Like it kind of feels like the future of science fiction and the future of pop music and the future of poetry. Like it's just very fluid and beautifully shot. Uh, a lot of neon colors in the night uh, under black lights uh, and a lot of just glowing analog computer equipment. And these really fiercely political songs about how capitalism is ruining the planet sucking all these bodies dry of all their like internal resources and how the system needs to be dismantled. Well, first and foremost, when you say that there's nothing else really like it, there is on the silver globe. And I think that these two movies are sort of in communication with each other insofar as they are protest science fiction films and also, they are both more poetic than they are focused on narrative or plot. I never saw that one. The movies that I compared it to were Baccarat because of like the communal resistance, and uh -huh. also uh, Black Orpheus because of like the lyricism of it being kind of a musical, but it's more like poetic and freeform than like you know a stage musical adaptation would be. And then also Hackers, because yeah. Hackers is very, like, retro, hack the planet. And the movie has kind of a flippant sense of humor about it in the same way. But I, I really should see on the Silver Globe. Uh, it's not as easily accessible as the films I just named. Uh, but I'm very curious it about sure it. It sure isn't, so I, don't, I can't blame you. I thought this movie was beautiful. I didn't want to look away. Just all of the colors and textures and... Suddenly, you know, you're in sort of like a dream world, like with the wheel man. It definitely inhabits a space that very few movies actually do. It's one of those movies that if you're on the wavelength for sitting back and letting something just flow over you, cinema-wise, you you're going to love it. Yeah, you know, I, I really see what you're saying, Brandon, with the comparisons to both Baccarat Although that one has a narrative that's more cohesive, right? Not necessarily cohesive, but more straightforward. It's familiar. It's like a Western, like defend the town kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And also with Black Orpheus, because I was thinking about that as well, whenever uh, the character uh, whose name I have forgotten, you know, starts to pick up his guitar and plays around the sort of like shantytown village that they have put together for themselves. It really reminded me of those moments in that film. But what I would call this, you know, movie, not just because it's an intersection between On the Silver Globe, because it also, like I said before, was a protest movie. 
um, an anti-colonial one, an anti-capitalist one, an anti-strip mining metaphor, and also the Sun Ra film Space is the Place. Yes. Oh, yeah. I thought exactly. Like, that's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, oh, this reminds me of Space is the Place, like, a lot. And I love Space is the Place, so. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably an easy comparison because they're both Afrofuturism musicals. But I was thinking about that a lot, too, because, you know, in uh, Neptune Frost, they're always talking about the authority, which made me think of his dark materials, because that's what they call the, like, sort of God Uh. uh, thing in that. Whereas in Space is the Place, it's the overseer and how those are both sort of capitalizations and and idealizations of uh, societal repression. Like I said, I I know it's an easy comparison to make, but I think that it belongs there as well. There's a couple feature length music videos from the past few years that dabble in that imagery as well and probably are pulling from the Sun Ra film, but like... Janelle Monae's Dirty Computer. Yeah, that's the other thing I thought of while I was uh, watching this. I was like, oh yeah, Dirty Computer as well. And uh, Solange's When I Get Home uh, has a very similar aesthetic to it as well. In stretches, I mean, that movie's all over the place. But uh, I don't know. I, I still think even if there are visual touchstones and like spiritual and political touchstones you can compare it to, it still presents images and sounds that you cannot find anywhere else. Like it is very similar. Absolutely true. Yes. Especially once Neptune and Matalusa are united. Like the movie gets so exciting and that music is so invigorating and dense with really big ideas presented in like the fewest words possible. Like when they say like black bodies currency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like explodes my brain in a way that like, I don't know. I was a poetry major in college. I feel like a lot of the things I look for in movies are like, trying to tap into the poetry of the art form. And I don't know that it's ever achieved as efficiently or as extravagantly as it is here. Like this is very good poetry and there's a lot of it. And it actually feels like it has like a purpose and it's evocative of like images and ideas that are like actually well thought out and incendiary and playful. And very rarely do I get as excited about like the future of the art form as I do watching this one. Were either of you fans of Saul Williams' like music before this? No, I, I honestly have not heard much. Well, I we had his 2007 album, the one that begins The Inevitable Rise and Liberation. We had that album at KLSU when I was working there, and it was a great album. Only a few tracks ended up on the server but it got passed around and one of the tracks is a cover of sunday bloody sunday that was the one that was like the most requested song from that album but it was really good and i I, you know i have interacted with his music occasionally again and again over the years and so whenever i first looked up this movie and when saul williams name came up i immediately knew we were in for a treat I will say his 2016 album, the title of it is Martyr, Loser, King, which is one of the things that is repeated and said a lot sort of near the end of the film, whenever there is more hacking going on. Yeah, because I guess that's Mata's name is kind of like a homonym for that Yeah, as well. Yeah, it's homonymous with Martin Luther King. Yeah. As they say, like Matalusa Kingdom, you know, it uses that 
poetic literary device of repeating something until it starts to lose meaning. The Gertrude Stein version of poetry. <laughs> yes, yes. And then creates its own new meaning where clearly a lot of it is taken from King's philosophy. I gotta say, in general, I've completely lost track of all other art forms besides movies. Like, when I was younger, I had endless voracious appetite for, like, movies, music, poetry, mm-hmm. and I don't know, something about, like, entering my 30s, I feel so out of touch with anything that's not movies <laughs> now. Like, I just kind of picked a lane. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. Maybe the last thing I was excited about in music before I completely checked out, like, I literally hear, like, maybe one new album a year at this rate, was Death Grips, which I think is pretty comparable to the oh, sound yeah. in this. Because yeah. it is a mixture of noise and hip-hop and other influences outside of that realm but as someone who is checked out i'm not a great authority on this but i will say the music does feel very forward thinking and experimental and invigorating in the same way that all the other ideas and influences in the movie are and i I could listen to the soundtrack by itself um as like a concept album and be perfectly happy and entertained that way as well yeah i think you know we were talking about like the visual albums that are going on and this is almost like that except it's still poetry so it's still almost too connected to that it sits in a really really nice comfortable space between the two i also really like the commentary on all of tech we have it's because of these miners and just going to this commune where everything is made out of these and pieces but they don't even have power for it. I I just really loved that as well. Like there's all this technology around that they can't even power it until Neptune gets there. And it's literally powered by the people and by yes. the people's bodies. Yes. Very intentionally well thought out in that way. Yeah. But as always with movies like this, just looking at art and the costumes and the hair and the makeup, I'm just like, oh wow. Like it's so lush and textured and just the little details of you know as we were talking about afrofuturism like you know, in sun Ra, they're all very like shiny foily the big dramatic capes and the updated pharaoh hats but here it's very like stripped down digital computer components as piercings and one of my favorite like costume pieces in the whole movie is this jacket that's just covered in old like keys from keyboards oh that jacket oh, it's is so awesome. cool it's so, <laughs> so cool. good like that aspect of the movie is just as important as any other thing you know and that's how movies should be obviously like that every detail is important but it's just like we were saying with the whole movies building their internal world isn't happening as much it feels like in a lot of ways that attention to detail and that level of thought about building this world without the dialogue is kind of dying away yeah if you watch this with your phone in your hand you're gonna miss most of what makes it special everything yeah. yes. <laughs> everything speaking of the fashion like I, I mentioned all the art forms this feels like the future of and i think you're exactly right that, that fashion is like a main one in that group mm-hmm. although like facial recognition disrupting masks oh, and like details them. that feels like something that genuinely could happen in the future is like doing that intentionally to avoid surveillance, but also aesthetically pleasing these like wire accents to the face that sort of like Mm -hmm. just disrupt 
the technology that would be able to like put your identity together based on a few characteristics. Um, the cops go very overboard with that, and it basically have a wire face shield. But other yeah. characters have these like sort of flourishes along their jawline or cheekbone that um, would disrupt that kind of technology. I thought that was very cool and smart. I also like it like as a trans narrative. Like at the end, like the drone, I don't even think can recognize her. Yeah. As, yeah. Because in all of the other ones, you know, you see it like pick up on Mata Lusa and very specific characters, but she's been reborn you know the idea of being very deliberate and controlling with our gender is a rebellion to the surveillance state absolutely it's great i don't know i'm just very heartened to hear y'all enjoyed this oh yeah oh yeah it was so beautiful Mm -hmm. it was so good it was so demanding of your attention but it was so poetic like you were talking about where the reason it's hard to follow is because all of the dialogue is poetry. Right. So it demands your attention in a way that a lot of films don't. It also like deliberately disorients you for almost the first half. Like when the two characters are lost in the world, you're kind of lost as well. Yeah. And I think even Neptune says something in the narration, like you're probably thinking to yourself, what the fuck is this? Some poet's demented dream. And that's, that <laughs> is a misquote and a paraphrase, but it's something like that. And it's when she and Matalusa lock eyes at that party and the, all the machines turn on, that everything clicks into place and you kind of get the plot all of a sudden, as loose as it is. And the movie starts to get very exciting and coherent in a way that like their lives are becoming more exciting and coherent. So I, I think like the biggest challenge, uh, besides keeping your phone locked away in another room while you watch this, is uh, sticking with it for that first hour, which I think is probably why this benefited from me seeing it in the theater the first time instead of at home. I don't know that it would have stuck out to me as, as vividly as it did, but once they click into place and they do that double dolly shot that you get in like every Spike Lee movie where like the camera mm-hmm. kind of pulls them together. Like they're not even walking, they're gliding towards each other. Yeah. She's like gliding towards him. Yeah. That like magnetic pull when they first lock eyes, like that really just excites my brain <laughs> in a way that like uh, the movie like doubles down on like immediately. Like, I think the next 15 minutes after that meeting is just pure, the best songs you've heard all year, one after another. And uh, it, it really rewards your patience. If you stick with it for that first hour, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So yeah. I mean, I love it from like love story perspective as well. It's just these yeah. two disenfranchised, like people who are oppressed and ignored different ways like finding each other in this new world and how that also powers a rebellion and like the joy of the music and the joy of the people like being a rebellion um i mean they explicitly say when guys like oh why aren't we doing this and this and all of these other very disruptive activities and they're talking about like this this is the movement like us being happy creating having our own world this is the rebellion and both sides of that argument are eventually proven right yes. i don't know if you can spoil a movie like this but like the machinery of war and oppression does get to them eventually yeah. <laughs> and uh that guy's concerned that they're not actually subverting yeah. or dismantling the system and they're just like creating poetry in this isolated community and that's like fun but kind of politically useless he's kind of proven right in the long run but also the way Neptune and like the idea of Neptune survives that attack 
um, also kind of proves the other point, right? That like you kind of need creativity and love and, and art to make life worth living in the first place. And uh, that's what's going to survive even like the vicious attacks from the top. Yeah, I think in the end, people like them living their lives how they want to is already like middle finger to the rhetoric at large. So it doesn't matter whether or not they're making big attacks. Like they're already seen as a danger and a threat. Just their very existence challenges that. It also adds to the movie's entertainment value that they're having fun and like, uh, you know, enjoying each other's company. Like it would kind of be miserable if there was no communal joy in that way. Yes. That is one of the things about on the silver globe is no one's ever having any fun in it. (laughs) I don't, we should, we should definitely make that clear to anyone who is listening, who has not watched this. There is not a moment in that movie where anyone is enjoying themselves. That's the director of possession, right? That's not exactly a cheery film either. No. Honestly, like, there are shots in this that are, like, so funny to me, too. And it feels very intentional. But, like, the word Frost from the title is the name of this, like, carrier pigeon that travels in and out of their dimension. And there's, like, a pigeon cam where, like, the only thing in the frame is this pigeon's head as it glides down to, like, greet them with messages. And, like, it feels like a visual gag. Yeah. Uh, And it's funny every time it's repeated. Yeah, I love the pigeon cam. And I think the movie also has fun with the idea that the poetry is dense and means so much and like is obviously like well thought out. There's also things like the character names like memory and innocence and techno and philosophy or like names of characters in the film. The pigeon's name is yeah. Frost. Those things sound like they're involved in this like larger mythology and maybe they are, but also they kind of play like a joke sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Especially, I think I believe innocence is the name of the cop. So that's like an ironic joke right there because yeah. he's like a he is an act of violence as a person. Yeah, yeah. Or from innocent. And you know, but yeah. naming a hacker character techno is like kind of playful in a way that like I think the movie strikes a good balance there as well. Like it is politically furious, but it's not without humor yeah. and joy, which is great. Well, I will continue to gush about this movie, maybe not as much at length, uh, next episode in the feed, uh, which will be our best movies of 2022 episode with James, Brittany, and Hannah. Um, and those are usually the longest of the year. Uh, we, we went a little long on this one as well, which uh, is to be expected because we haven't talked in a while. I'm very glad that this worked out. I don't know. When I made y'all watch Titan last year in this exact scenario where it's like well it's my favorite movie of the year i want other people to watch it and talk about it with me because it's not something that most people have seen outside the podcast you know i kind of figured y'all were going to watch titan anyway yeah. <laughs> and like uh yeah. this was more of a gamble it's like uh, i'm gonna make i'm making you go out of your way to watch something that i'm like obsessed with uh so i'm glad it worked out well oh, i would say that you're like one of the few people where i'm like oh brandon liked this movie i'll probably like it that's wonderful to hear. I know um, a lot of personal friends outside of this podcast uh, where the exact opposite is true. <laughs> oh, Brandon liked it. I am not watching that. <laughs> <laughs> Rencontre atypique un soir, Rocky Horror Cinema Cigaro, Kekaro, Kessoutif, collant mauvais noir C'est ce que j'avais mis, ce qu'elle avait mis, elle brillait dans le noir White Mox, make my hopes, sweat men with gay ghosts Elle passe, il y a une trace, sa main sur place, je prends note Sans cara pour le vote, femme garde la tête haute Mec me fuck, pas de bluff, on nique le coeur, on place le code
Make move, move, make move, 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 move